From the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library, this is Stories from the Stacks. Each episode, we share new discoveries in the history of American enterprise and its impact on the world, made by researchers using our collections. My name is Ryan Haddad. I'm a doctoral candidate at the University of Maryland, and my project is called America's Commercial Cold War. It's a study of how U.S. policymakers attempted to use trade restrictions and trade promotion after World War II to combat the threat of communism. Uh, One of the big questions that I'm really interested in this project is, uh, after World War II, the U.S. pursued two policies that on their face are mutually exclusive. So uh, on one hand, they promoted global economic liberalism. So this idea that by promoting uh, free markets and free societies through an interdependent sort of network of arrangements um, would promote peace and prosperity, not just for the U.S., but for all countries. But at the same time, right out the gate, this is sort of compromised by the fact that they're in this standoff with the Soviet Union, um, which um, with the emergence of the Cold War really divides the world into blocks. Um, And those blocks are organized around different conceptions of political economy. And so you have this tension between this global policy objective and this sort of regional policy interest. Um, And so that's sort of the the big frame I'm working with. And so um, with respect to the restrictive side of my research, um, I'm looking mostly at policies called export controls, uh, and to some extent sanctions, but um, export controls are are sort of the big piece of it. And uh, it's a pretty esoteric policy area, so um, I briefly could just describe it as um, a a regulatory tool for trying to restrict trade and different types of goods or resources or information for some policy reason. So they have their uh, base in the wartime experience, originally a wartime measure. Um, that is put in place to try and make sure that the U.S. always has enough resources to wage World War II. Um, And then after the war, um, one of the priorities for the U.S. government is to try and reconstruct the global economy, reconstruct uh, the European economy. Um, And so when the Marshall Plan comes out, one of the things that occurs to some policymakers at a pretty early juncture back in 1948 to uh, some extent 47, is that um, the same types of things that they want to send to friendly Western European countries to support reconstruction there could just as easily go to the communist world and support reconstruction there. Uh, and so um, there's this dilemma of you know, how do we deal with this problem because, uh, and all U.S. policymakers sort of understood this, there, was a, there were historical trade routes between Eastern and Western Europe. They relied on each other from since far before the war. Uh, Western Europe specialized in uh, technology and manufacturing and industry. And um, Eastern Europe was more of a natural resource supplier um, and was only just becoming more of an industrial power um, in, the, in the 1930s. Um, and so uh, there's this attempt to create sort of a semi-sealed marketplace for this particular subset of goods. And, and you're talking about things that are, you know, some of it's um, 
you know, natural resource, but, but sometimes it's like machinery, machine tools are a very big one, um, things like that, different types of, of, of other um, equipment. And so um, they try to create this sort of contained marketplace, and this immediately causes problems with Western European allies. Um, and then over the course of time, and this is where my study uh, goes up quite a bit further in the future, so later on, when, by the time you get to like the late 60s, um, the U.S. starts to worry about its global competitiveness position. And so there starts to be this pressure on U.S. industry broadly outside of the export control context where they start to worry that maybe we're not number one anymore. Um, and so for some industries who've been complaining for a while about um, the what they consider to be anti-competitive policies of export controls, becomes a real issue. And so over time, there's sort of this like ebbing and flowing of how tightly the US is trying to control trade in this area. And I'm here at Hagley to look mostly at the records of the National Association of Manufacturers and the National Foreign Trade Council to see how those trade associations and their members were trying to grapple with export controls and sanctions policies at various points in time Yes. Uh, so this is the part of the project that's most interesting to me. Uh, and it's why I'm here is to sort of look for these interesting sort of case studies. Um, because one of the things that it turns out is that um, while people who were originally designing the system in the early, early days are thinking about goods going from point A, United States, to point B. Uh, but it gets a lot more complicated than that at various points in time, uh, depending on what things are because of the nature of the expansion of multinational enterprise. You know, a lot of times um, what happens is an export from the U.S. is going from one country to a subsidiary, one company to a subsidiary of that company. Um, and then they are the ones who want to market it. And so there's this question of, okay, so we're trying to prevent this item from going to the U from the U.S. to an adversarial country. But we, we delineate like this group of countries it's okay to go to, but what if, say, I send a particular controlled machine tool to England, what then? Like, I, do, do I have control over it going to another country at that point? And so um, it creates these really interesting problems. So one case study that I found here, um, 1955, uh, there was an issue about, that became of interest to the Chemistry Association. Uh, and essentially their issue was the U.S. said, well, wait a minute, you know, certain types of uh, information relating to chemical compounds and things like that should be controlled because they could be used in munitions. And the perspective of the Chemist Association was essentially, well, yeah, but it can be used for lots of other things. And the only way you could really restrict it is to tell us we can't publish on these subjects, which is a First Amendment issue. Um, so that becomes one interesting issue. Um, other cases, so um, one of the ways the U.S. tries to contain goods from going to the Eastern Bloc once they've left the U.S. is they work with European allies and eventually Japan to set up this network called COCOM, which is a multilateral arrangement of countries that are trying to coordinate policies to some de minimis level that everyone can agree with. And uh, the idea being that these are countries the U.S. is comfortable applying a looser standard of controls to because they know those countries generally observe the same policies the U.S. does. But it leaves out countries that are neutral. So 
in the early 50s already, you're starting to have problems with countries like Switzerland. So you wouldn't necessarily think of Switzerland as a national security risk, but the way the rules were generated, they were. And so there are cases of, especially this was an issue for the Machine Tool Association. So um, the head of the National Machine Tool Builders Association at some point in the early 50s, I think 1953, started complaining about this to the government and said, well, well look, like we know who our suppliers are in Switzerland. We've had long-standing relationships with them. They are not part of the Soviet bloc. We know if we send them something, they're, you know, it, we know where it's going, what they're going to do with it, because we know them. We have people on the ground there and all that. And so we feel like they should be given special treatment too, and that was a very controversial issue. Um, there are other issues pertaining to how these things are enforced. So uh, another example that I really like is um, in the late 60s, there was an example with um, the computers, because computers, you know, a lot of the technology is, is not so much the physical device, but it's actually the coding and the logic of the machine and all that. Um, and in one particular case, um, one, of, one of the uh, leading companies, I forget which company it was off the top of my head, went to Congress and testified and said, look, you know, one of the problems we're having is actually the fact that you're trying to control these things from re-export um, by making us get our customers swear to what they're going to do with this over the life cycle of the, the product. Like, no other country asks for this. Um, and so this is a competitive problem for us. So that, that's kind of like another example. There are lots of examples of things like this. So I'm trying to make sense of this by using uh, case studies of different types of products. So um, one of the ones that I have for the early part of the period is, is the car industry. Um, cars actually were not export controlled, um, but one of the things that I think hasn't necessarily always been appreciated is the fact that, so the way a lot of people who've looked at the subject of export controls have looked at is they focus a lot on what were on these detailed lists of items that were controlled that were produced by the US government. But the problem with that is that they weren't the only criteria. There was another set of criteria, which was destination. And so if you had an uncontrolled type of product, but it was going to a controlled destination, that could be a problem too. Um, and so I found one case study uh, where the government in an interagency fashion is trying to figure out if just regular passenger cars, which are not controlled, should be able to go abroad. Um, I'm also looking at machine tools are a big one. Um, they're a big issue pretty much throughout the period. They seem to have the most trouble with it because they're inherently useful for both commercial and military purposes. Uh, and then computing is interesting to me because, um, and electronics, because they're really deeply involved with debates about technical data. And technical data starts to be an issue, as I mentioned, mid-50s, continues to be a problem that's hard to kind of figure out how to calibrate controls for, even to this day. Uh, and so um, it's, a, it's a great tool for looking at uh, differences in control policies. So this is a question that I'm really interested in. Um, I've been doing a lot of work in the archives here on the subject. I've actually found a lot of really interesting things that I'm still sort of piecing together and trying to figure out how I, I feel about them. But one of the things that is starting to come a little bit into focus is that 
industry leaders and corporate leaders at, at this particular juncture in history, at least for the period that I've mostly looked at, which is the immediate post-war to the uh, maybe late 60s, is the part that I've done the most research on for this project, um, really view themselves as a type of statesman. You know, they believe themselves to be ambassadors. They are carrying forward this particular message that the U.S. government also is advocating, which is that free markets and free societies together are good for everybody. They produce peace and prosperity. Um, it's an argument that I found some evidence of, at least on the NFTC side, they were advocating since the mid-30s, uh, shortly after the uh, passage of the Reciprocal Trade Agreements Act, which is an important milestone in U.S. trade policy. Um, and so a big question I'm, I'm grappling with is what really motivates business leaders to get involved in these debates? Is it more economic issues or is, is it diplomatic questions? And so I've come across some really interesting stuff. In 1965, the Johnson administration decides they want to take a look at revising east-west trade policy in general. Um, and the reason is, is because at this point they're a little concerned that their foreign policy with respect to the Soviet bloc is unbalanced because it's heavily military at this point. You're starting to get involvement in Vietnam. And so they, there is this idea that's been kicking around since the Kennedy administration um, that maybe trade could be used as a negotiating chip to win political concessions from the Soviets. And it might also have some positive benefit. And while business leaders are looking at this question through the prism of their own experience, and in many cases they had you know, some business dealings with these companies, usually very limited, but they had some, um, they were thinking more in terms of national policy. And the big, the big takeaway from that for me was that business leaders did not at that point really see a whole lot of you know, like fiscal value for their companies from doing business in the Soviet bloc. They just didn't think that there, was, there were too few dollars. They, there were too few things that Soviet bloc countries produced that Americans wanted to buy. And so there were these structural disadvantages to expanding East-West trade. But they understood the diplomatic value of trade. And so they were willing, in some cases, leaders would come out and say, like, look, this is not the best use of our firm's money. But if you tell me that it's in the national interest, then I'll try and get something going behind the Iron Curtain. So one of the more interesting cases I found um, here at the Hagley in, in the National Association of Manufacturers Records was the, um, so in 1972, uh, Richard Nixon, as part of his Dayton initiative, signs a trade agreement with the Soviet Union. And this is in October of 72. By February of 73, so a few months later, uh, National Association of Manufacturers is having this conference with major figures of the Soviet government from industry, from the diplomatic uh, sections uh, over at the Shoreham Hotel in DC. And they're talking about, you know, what can we do to create mutual business opportunities. You know, it's a great opportunity for our countries to sort of put aside hostilities, uh, work together for mutual benefit. And um, one of the major conditions that the Soviets come back with is like, look, you know, you still don't treat us like you treat other countries as far as trade's concerned. So essentially they wanted most favored nation status. Well, but 
1974, the U.S. passes new Trade Act. The Trade Act contains an amendment called the Jackson-Vanek Amendment, uh, which basically prevents the U.S. from granting most favored nation status uh, to the Soviet Union based on its policies of Jewish emigration. Um, and they, that pretty much kills it right there. By uh, early 1975, the Soviet Union doesn't want to implement the trade agreement. And this whole initiative, like the, the East-West Trade Task Force that NAM sets up, closes after you know, like two and a half years or something like that. And it's interesting because diplomatic interests really condition opportunities. At the Shoreham Conference, there are transcripts in the records of uh, what was actually said in the speeches at this event. And that incident is specifically brought up uh, by one of the speakers. Who would have thought? You know, we had the kitchen debate. And now here we are, and we're opening trade relations and all that. But business leaders especially persistently thought that um, expanding market opportunities, getting American products and the American way of doing business out behind the Iron Curtain uh, would probably be the end of hostilities, that it would you know, be a peace-building thing. But they also, they, they thought you know, a lot of them thought that communism was just doomed. It just didn't work as well. And they'd hold up American prosperity as an example of why they were right. And they would look at relative conditions in other places and say, well, you know, the problem is we just need to extend this to everyone. And then there won't be any more problems. One of the records I found at one of the National Foreign Trade Conferences, this is 1950, so this isn't normal times because it's Korea. Uh, one of the speakers, a business leader, comes out and, and says, you know, I was talking to a newspaper man. And he said to me, you know, how's your foreign trade business going? And he expected me to say, it's going terribly. And I said, it's actually going pretty well. And the guy was shocked and basically said, well, all you trade people are a bunch of communists anyway. And there's, there's a lot of popular pressure um, against doing business with communist governments from the public, uh, from the union sector. Um, and it's interesting because when they do the study in, in 1965, the Johnson administration does the study, they look at it and they say, this is a really unique feature of the American experience. Like here we are, and we're trying to be this global standard bearer for democratic capitalism. But the problem is that our people think that doing business with communist countries is trading with the enemy and it's immoral. It's, it's almost like a corporate social responsibility thing. And we're the only one of our friends who thinks this way uh, because Actually, funnily enough, um, considering that the conception of Anglo-American relations is this special relationship, the British were the number one antagonist of U.S. export control policy because they had a more export-driven economy. They saw no problem with doing business with communist regimes. And it's true of other countries at other times. Canada has persistent problems with the U.S.'s Cuba and China policies, um, even though they're the U.S.'s closest ally on export control issues. Um, and that relationship is especially complicated because, um, because of the movement of multinational enterprise from the U.S. abroad. Uh, some huge percentage of Canadian industry ends up being owned by uh, American interests, it's, uh, by some accounts. The account of Lester Pearson, who was prime minister, took over in the early 60s, was 60% of Canadian industry was owned by like American firms or things like that. And so what would end up happening was um, 
U.S. regulators would look and say, well, well, these are American companies, so they ought to be subject to the same restrictions we're putting on companies based in the U.S. Um, you know, if Ford based in Detroit isn't allowed to do business with Cuba, why can't Ford Canada do business with Cuba? And the Canadian government would come back and say, well, wait a minute. This is a Canadian company. Everyone who works there is Canadian. It's organized under Canadian law. You can't tell us what to do. And so it creates these dynamics where it incentivizes companies, if they really want to do business with certain proscribed countries, to ship business to other countries. And so that's a policy dilemma that officials try and grapple with. I think one of the more interesting issues, and this is one that some industries, I know the machine tool industry makes this argument a lot, especially in the 60s, which is that the U.S. has disproportionate commercial strength, and that's one thing. Um, but in the context of export controls in that era, they found that it was problematic for their industry to not to, to go beyond what other countries that also supplied similar products were willing to do from the standpoint of the national machine tool builders. They would essentially say, like, look, understand, you don't want these things to go to the Soviet bloc, and that's one thing, we make these things, we understand, we, we admit that this could also be used for military purposes. But the problem is that our friends in Europe make similar stuff. So if we decide we're going to be a lone holdout on trading with the Soviet bloc in this particular area, they're still going to get the stuff, we're just going to lose market share. And so there's an incentive to try and work with other partner countries that, to try and align policies and work together. And that's because, you know, from their perspective, the way things were working for them, they were just getting undercut, and so was U.S. policy. One of the things that I found really amazing about the records of the National Foreign Trade Council is they put out a lot of memoranda advising businesses about different issues that were going on in global trade. And so I was looking at the period from about 48 to 52. And the first thing that happens is you get this real appreciation for just the unbelievable chaos of that era and trying to do business in the global economy in that era. Um, so, I mean, because you had this case where Many businesses had already gone abroad before the war. They had assets there. There were all these questions about who owned what assets. The U.S. government had frozen a bunch of assets, and they remained frozen at least as far as I've been looking until I'm still piecing through these records, but at least five years later, they were, some of these assets were still frozen, trying to figure out who owns what. In the meantime, there are all kinds of taxes due. There are currency issues. There are all, all these layered issues. Um, one of the more interesting ones I found relates to China. Um, in Up until 1949, after the war, the NFTC is, is still pretty interested in, in getting involved in China. Uh, they have members who are doing business there. And the U.S. government, um, because of the, the civil war there, is starting to take a really hard look at restricting trade to the communist-held areas. Uh, I've not looked minutely at this. I can't imagine how you would police moving areas of what were communist control or nationalist control at that point. Um, but in 1949, it's over, um, and the NFTC makes one more sort of internal look at, well, maybe we should advocate 
recognition of Mao's regime because you know they believed in the virtues they were peddling that that you know free markets and free societies would be beneficial but we can't have that you know at least some commercial relations will be good for U.S. foreign policy um, and they end up uh, in 1950 relations are so bad between the U.S. and China that the U.S. pulls out its um, diplomatic presence out of China but they don't necessarily evacuate everybody they don't say everyone has to go kind of on your own and and as far as the NFTC knows, 25 business people are left behind and they're basically stuck there. And the Chinese government is trying to get them to finish out all their contracts and you know meet all these different demands that they had no ability to do because they're just 25 people. Thank you for listening to Stories from the Stacks. For more information on the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society and the Hagley Museum and Library, visit us online at hagley.org. That's H-A-G-L-E-Y dot O-R-G.